Starting a business is no joke, especially as a mother of two kids, two dogs, a cat, and is married to a fighter pilot husband who travels half the month. However, if you were a seasoned combat veteran that has dealt with death and stress on a daily basis, balancing kids, marriage, and small business might just be a welcome challenge. On today's episode, I welcome U.S. Army UH-60 Blackhawk pilot and small business owner Lacey Zekley. We talk about her time flying medevac chase in Afghanistan, the importance of standing your ground, and how she leverages her combat experience in her daily life as a wife, mother, and small business owner, as well as a short story on $1 engagement rings and every girl's dream of being proposed to in a FedEx parking lot. I'm your host, Susan, and this is The Ready Room Podcast. What do you say? You ready for this? Yeah. Let's this. Do we need another gin and tonic before we go? Or we just, <laughs> I think we're at two. I think we should just go. Just go. Let's play yeah. ball. Let's do this. I'll talk. Okay. Mm. We're live. Awesome. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome. We have a very, very special guest with us today. We have our first Army helicopter pilot featured as a guest on the podcast. She has done two tours in Afghanistan as a warrant officer. Finished up after eight years as a CWO2, did one tour in the Sinai Peninsula and Israel, uh, did some flying out of Israel and Egypt, uh, as well as Afghanistan, like I said, two times. Flew the H-60, which was a medevac chase, which was assigned to essentially a company dust-off, which are the medevac H-60s, to pick up uh, like wounded and KIA, as well as, so part of their job was suppressive fire. To make sure, if needed, help out the medevac guys. Uh, she left active duty in 2012. In 2019, started uh, a side hustle with the help of her husband called Sweat Fitness here in Reno, Nevada. So she's also a small business owner. Not only that, she's also a mother of two small humans, two dogs, and one cat. She has been happily married to a Navy fighter pilot for 10 years, and uh, they now live in Reno, Nevada. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my pleasure to introduce the one and only Lacey Zekley to the podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me here. Welcome. <laughs> no, this is awesome. And that rad introduction. Right? Pretty <laughs> rad. I'm glad you used the word rad because most people don't and it's a shame because it's a great word. It is. So, rad, radical, it's underused. Yeah, the, the 1980s surf terms yeah. are in play here in Reno. They're coming back. All right, bring it back. 100%. All right, so that was a, a little intro to, to her background, <laughs> but we're going to get into... You know, we had talked about kind of the meat and potatoes we're going to try to talk about is all the stuff you do now that you juggle and the lessons you learned in your previous career, flying 60s in the Army, and how you make it all happen. Because this is not easy. Kids, yeah. a fighter pilot husband. 100%. You kidding me? That's like just another child. <laughs> so you pretty much have three kids, right? Well, the gym's the third kid. Gabe. Three and a half? Yeah. He's not a full child. Okay. No. <laughs> so three point seven five kids. There we go. All right, that works. All right. So yep. Lace, let's get into it. All right. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Washington State. All right. Tell us about I, that. I um grew up on a farm on the east side of the Cascades. So about an hour east of Portland, Oregon. And my dad was a city slicker who decided to move to the, the country. And so he has a farm there. Um, he, I say some people are addicted to cocaine. My dad is addicted to airplanes. Nice. So he was a Pan Am pilot. I grew up with aviation. 
um, helped him, my sisters and I helped him build a runway on our farm. So aviation was nothing that was new to us. It was something that was sort of a part of our life from the get-go. And so we were fortunate enough to grow up in that atmosphere. And first thing I'll say is never have a family member be a flight instructor. Why? Because it's like, imagine your brother or sister, like teaching you a very important task that you could oh die gosh. doing. And <laughs> oh man, Do you listen to them or do you argue or oh not? Man. So totally. Um, the opportunity to mess with one of my siblings in an airplane. Right. Too easy. Yes. Way too easy. So I've never flown. I have two sisters. Uh, growing up, we all flew with my dad. Uh, my mom was a flight attendant for Pan Am. My dad was a, a Pan Am pilot, retired, or he was with them until they went under in 93. But um, that was sort of the backbone of our our um, childhood growing up with aviation. So we flew general aviation a lot. Um, and I did fly once with my older sister, and it was the most horrific flight I've ever been on. We flew out of Vancouver and Kelly, my older sister Kelly's like, hey, Lacey, we're flying up the Columbia Gorge. And if any of you guys know about the Columbia Gorge, it's like windsurfing capital of America <laughs> or the world for that matter. So there's lots of wind, right? So if you're in a Cessna 150 flying up the gorge, you're just like turbulence, turbulence, turbulence. And Kelly's like, hey, Lacey, take the flight controls. And I was like, I, I'm like 15. It's like, are you sure, Kelly? She's like, take the controls or we're going to crash. <laughs> It's like that's the meanest thing so you know you've got the death grip on the yoke and uh so after that i vowed i was like i'm never flying with family again nice not doing was it. she just messing with you i don't know we'll ask kelly later all right i don't sounds know good. <laughs> so a cessna 172 in the columbia gorge yeah one we flew 172s 150s um my like i said he was addicted to planes we had a whole bunch growing up he had a a widgeon an L-19 bird dog, which is a Vietnam warplane. Okay. So your old Scouts. man sounds exactly like the pilots I know. Oh, great. Like a, a large best. child? Yeah. hundred. They never grow up. Right. Yeah. What was your mom like? Well, she's always been like, <laughs> I guess you could say the responsible one. The balance? The balance. Yeah. And I think that's important in a relationship. You have to have both. You can't have two crazy wild people. You can't, like, you need a balance to balance each other out, and they are the perfect match. They've been married over 50 years now, and um, they're just... 50 years? Oh, that, yeah. That's badass. Yeah. And yeah. so what year did they get married? 69. Damn, that's badass. Yeah. No kidding. I like how the cat is. Yeah, this is Cash. I got him when I was in the Army. All right. Cash wants to get on the podcast. He does. So did you play sports growing up? Uh, track. I was a runner. All right. So I love to run. I tried What'd volleyball. So I ran the 400 meters. I had, my, I have short legs. I couldn't do her. What was your fastest time in the 400? Shit, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I don't remember. But we made it to state in the relay. So that was good. But uh, it was it was good. I, I did pretty well. Right. But again, like I, I left high school. I did my freshman, sophomore year. My junior year, I went to France for a year exchange. And then... Uh, after that, I was like, I'm not going back to high school, <laughs> especially in my small town that I, I lived in in White Salmon. And I was like, you know, I can't do this. So I moved to Portland and I went to a community college my senior year. And I honestly, I really enjoyed a community college. It was small. I got to know the instructors. I got to know the people. So that was sort of like it opened my eyes. I remember visiting my sister who was up at UW and it was terrifying. It's huge. There was just so many people in one class and I just, it wasn't my scene. And 
I know that sounds crazy, but I really enjoyed the community no college. One, that's something no one ever says. No I one. loved community college. I loved community college. I wanted to leave high school. So you skipped your senior year. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I got, yeah, high school credit doing college credit. Not bad. Yeah. And where did the, where did the army idea come into play? Well, it was never army in, originally. I, um, so I went to France to learn French and I always wanted to be a linguist. I always thought it would be so cool. And then when I found out, you know, that, you know, after 9-11, I was like, I'm going to have to learn Arabic and that's not a language I want to learn. And I was a little intimidated by it too. And I remember in Seattle going and talking to a Marine recruiter um, and my dad was just, you know, he was a little bit hesitant about it because at that point I didn't have my degree yet. And he wanted me to join as an officer. So from there, you know, then I decided to change my major. I was sort of a lost kid. I bounced around college to college and then uh, became a um, physical, like a PT. I, I did a PT internship to see if that was the route I wanted to go. And I, I didn't like it either. And nothing held my attention like aviation. So in the end, I was living in uh, Phoenix, Arizona. And I was like, you know what? I'm, I'm going to take an incentive flight in a helicopter. And I did. And it was over from there. I was done. Because I grew you, up with fixed wing. So but incentive ride. This is the recruiter? No, this is just like go pay for a flight in a Robinson. And you go like fly in class G airspace and kind of bomb around, you know, Sararos and, and just get a feel for it and see if it's something you enjoy. And you got hooked. I was hooked. Day one, I immediately went and talked to a recruiter. I started studying. Um, I was what they were calling high school to flight school because I didn't have a degree at the time. So high school to flight school means you are guaranteed in the military, in the army at least, a flight position before you even sign the dotted line. So a lot of people go and they join the military, but they don't know what their job is really going to be yet. They have a bracket and they have a list of classes. Maybe, what do you guys know? What's that? Like that you're going to go fly jets when you guys were flying. Did you so know the, that was now the in aircraft? In the Marine Corps, you... So you finish your degree. So rather than go warrant officer like yeah. you did, so we'd have a four-year degree. You had a air contract. Okay. You didn't know, one, it could be taken away if you were just epically terrible at everything and at all the various schools before flight school. You could have your air contract taken away. Yeah. Um, you could get kicked out. Yeah. Um, but you knew you could, let's say you made it through all this stuff and you got to flight school. As long as you passed flight school, you're going to fly something. You just you didn't know what. You still competed Gotcha. You know, was it fixed wing or helos? And then depending on which route you went from there, if it was fixed wing, which I did, was it, was it C-130s, jets, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. So, but you are, <laughs> you know, you're going to fly as so, a war officer. But, and it would be helicopters because that's what I wanted. I didn't want to fly airplanes. And so, so I applied and it took me a year. I studied for a whole year. I was pumping gas at an airport, um, you know, just working on the flight line and, and I just, I did great on the test. I applied and I was actually traveling on the Oregon Trail and I found out. The Oregon Trail. <laughs> yeah. And I found out, I get a phone call from my recruiter and he's like, Lacey, and, and my test scores were, everything was great. I was a shoe in really for high school to flight school. However, I get the phone call and they say, Lacey, I, I regret to tell you, but you didn't make it in. I was like, what the flying fuck? Like, are you serious? And 
Luckily, I had a sister who had gone through the exact same program down at Fort Rucker, Alabama, and she was in flight school when I was turned down. And uh, I was like, Amber and I had the exact same credentials. We, you know, we had a private pilot's license, um, so much about same, same college. I think we had, I was a junior in college. And uh, so he's like, yeah, you did not get it because you weren't competitive enough. And I was like, well, what do you mean? Tell me more. My mom, luckily, like she stepped in because she's like this force of nature. Uh, she never takes no for an answer. And she's like, Lacey, you're calling Fort Rucker and you're going to find out why. And I was like, what do you mean? I'm going to call a military base and find out why I didn't get accepted into flight school, mom. <laughs> so I, um, I called Fort Rucker <laughs> And I actually got to talk to someone who had the stack. And then, you know, I mean, it was, what a year? It was 2005. So it, it was all papers. Like he had paper stacks of, you know, folders of people, of applicants coming in. And he's like, what's your name? And I was like, Lacey Smith. He's like, okay, I'm pulling. He's like looking, looking. He's like, yeah, I found it. He's like, Lacey, you know, sounds great. You're just not competitive enough. You have other people that are already pilots and... And I go, but I'm a pilot. And he's like, what? And uh, my recruiter never submitted any of my flight records. Nice. Like n absolutely nothing. Way to go, buddy. So it just looked like I was a junior in college applying to flight school. So um, it was zero hours. So anyway, he's like, hey, this is what I want from you. I want you to you know, submit an essay on why you want to be an Army aviator. And we're going to put your, your file back in the stack next month. And uh, the next month, I got accepted into flight school. Wow. After we submitted all my shit. So you got all your, your records, your, yeah. your logbooks together. Yeah, all my logbooks, my, you know, my certificates, FAA. Um, I just wasn't competitive. And then once I had all that in there, they were like, yeah, she's competitive. Just a minor detail from the recruiter. Whoops, my just, bad. Just a minor. I happen to forget <laughs> all your flight records. <laughs> Jeez, <laughs> to apply for an aviation position. Right. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. Your mom, I mean, if your mom isn't, if she doesn't take charge there and. Yeah. I say, mean, hey, I wouldn't have gone the military route. I don't know what I would have done. That's cool. Yeah. You called up. I'm surprised you actually got to the person with the stack of papers on their desk. Yeah. And they pulled your name out. I mean, yeah. in the Marine Corps, good luck. Oh, oh really? Wait, that's not happening. <laughs> like they're going to, you're going to be small. on hold for six hours. <laughs> It, you know, it's going to be the recording music in the background and yeah. you're never going to get, no one's going yeah. to answer. That's if anything, it just shows like you squeaky wheel gets the grease in the end. So if I would have just backed down and, you know, cried my eyes out like I was doing anyway, but if I hadn't have called, who knows where I would have been today, what I would have done. So, so if you, anything, th there was something like, that you wanted to do and you went after it a hundred percent. And it's true of any uh, everything in life, right? I like it. We're going to get into that. Yeah, good. We're going to get into that. Because that's so important. Yes. All right, so you ended up flying 60s. Yep. Is that what you wanted to fly? Yes. Actually, well. So for. for I lied. I lied. Like, we, we have to, because there's so many acronyms and numbers and random, okay. you know, military stuff we're going to talk about. We got to break down a little bit of it. Okay. Tell anybody who might not know. Okay. So UH-60 is yeah, a utility helicopter. Is. I flew in Lima. Uh, which is kind of old school. I mean, they started out as alphas and then they worked their way up to Lima and then finally they got to a mic model, which is a glass cockpit. But I still had like gyros and all the old school shit, the kneeboard, you know, and 
Um, it was wonderful. It, it, it's the best aircraft, in my opinion. I just, I love the diversity of it. However, it was not my first choice. The Army uh, got rid of Huey's way back when. However, <laughs> there's only one place left at the time when I was in flight school that had a Huey, and it was Egypt, the Sinai Peninsula, and they had some Hueys. And so that was my, that's where I wanted to go. I was like, I'm, I'm going to Egypt straight out of flight school. And I didn't care. I was like, I want to go fly. And turns out I got my first pick. I got Blackhawks. And then I found out that they, <laughs> they phased out Hueys six months prior to me getting there. Okay. So you still have a crush on Hueys? A hundred. Oh, oh yeah. Forever. That's my aircraft. If I actually, I wanted uh, my dream, my best friend and I in Afghanistan would dream about opening the Blue Moose, which was going to be a lodge in Alaska where we could have a couple super Hueys and, and we could fly people, you know, for hella skiing in Hueys. It's my dream. I love that aircraft. The Blue Moose. The Blue Moose. You've thought this through. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, we spent a couple of years thinking about it. Just in Afghanistan. Yeah. yeah hanging yeah. out in your rack. I mean, what else do you do? Yeah, really. <laughs> So that, that's big. the 60s, but yeah. what was there, you know, the 60s have a ton of different mission sets. They do yeah. all different so, kinds of things. So what what specific mission set did you get as a 60 pilot? As where I was, so I was primarily most of my career based in um, Fort Campbell, Kentucky. We were the 159th Aviation Brigade, which now ceases to exist. Um, but we were a GSAP. So we did general support. We did almost everything. It was a blanket, but always on deployments we had medevac chase so we weren't attached to a specific medevac unit it would be whoever happened to be in afghanistan at that time and they would task us with um chasing that aircraft which means you are chalk two and our sole mission over there again like you said earlier was to provide suppressive fire if they needed us um, we had 240 machine guns on either side of our helicopter. As you guys know, the med bird is not allowed to have machine guns on board. So let's dig into this. Hang on. We're going to, we're going to pull this apart okay. a little bit. So you're, you're running a, so medevac chase. Yeah. So who's the medevac? So medevac actually has a flight surgeon or flight doc on board or flight medic. You know, it just depends. And the flight medics, they are there to keep you alive. So anyone that has any trauma, um, you know, and, and back then in 2008 and 2009 in that deployment, a lot of them was double, triple amputees. And Almost this is every... where? Uh, we were in Bagram. Bagram, Afghanistan. Yeah. All right. But again, medevac is all over. So then it was called RC East. So we were strategically placed in different areas to pick up casualties. So the only time you guys go flying, for the most part, at when your when your mission set is medevac chase, someone's wounded, always or killed, always. So it's not a uh, the phone rings. It's not a hey. It's not a good phone call. I mean, Never. this is just a dog choking. That was just the, a dog in, just hacking on a bone. <laughs> no worries, don't mind that. But so you're you're hanging out and yeah. talk through the process of you guys are in the ready room. Are you on like an alert, like a timed alert, hanging yes. out, and then the phone rings. You have your, your medevac guys, your dust off 60s launch, yep. you launch with them. And then sometimes you have gunship escort. Yeah. Depending on where you're going. So, so what's the process like? The phone rings and what happens? So you have radios. You could be sleeping in bed. You could be eating dinner, taking a shower. If it's a cat alpha, you have about seven minutes to respond, to be at fly. So you have seven minutes to haul ass to your aircraft, get going and, and you're launching. What's a cat alpha? A cat alpha is... 
they have them all labeled. So if if uh, this is category alpha. category, sorry, I'm going to help you with acronyms. That's okay. Thank you. No worries. Cat alpha. No worries. Uh, so if you had your arm blown off or you were shot in the abdomen, that is a cat alpha. When it is life or death, that means they need you now. So then, you know, then there's different variations of it and how much time we have to respond. So that's really what it comes down to. And cat alphas um, are obviously the most serious. Uh, and so you just have to be ready at all times. So uh, you can't, you, you're normally on medevac for about a week. It just depends. And then medevac chase. So for a week, you are just on call nonstop. And then when you when the radio call comes in, hey, category whatever it is or whatever whatever the category then yes that just dictates like how long you have until you need to launch to go get someone so if you had uh, possible rabies like a cat bit you or a dog bit you off at a cop then um then you know we would have a little bit more time and how much information do you have so we have a nine line so So they give you a kazabak nine line yeah and then is the whole group standing by getting that same call so you have your yes yeah. so you have, 60s get the call yes. so you guys all gets know the call we're all together your gunship guys are there as well you're we're, we're all sleeping uh under the same roof okay we're all together and what's do you remember your first time your first mission you flew as medevac chase uh not as medevac chase i remember my first mission as gsab and I had a senior guy that what's, was. Uh, what's that? Well, what's G- well, it's like G-Sap? general support, general basically, support. where you're not doing uh, medevac. You're you're VIP missions. You're you're flying people from point A to point B. You know, you're basically a taxi cab driver at that point when you're doing general. They can support. tag you in for just about anything. Yeah, yeah, it's fair game. But um, let's get let's get back to the medevac chaser sure. because you had talked about yesterday briefly. Yeah. Not only were you there to provide suppressive fire if needed so if you guys got shot at you return fire the dust off the actual medevac helicopter does not have weapons on it is that accurate that's correct okay so your gunship guys are gonna you know lay down close air support if needed that Mm -hmm. type of thing but you also said that you know if there was anybody kia that was your role oh yeah yeah so talk through that a little bit so it was on our first deployment. So in 2008, 2009, lots of Marine Corps. It was a really nasty couple years in Afghanistan. And um, so that year, there was zero. They were trying to limit the amount of ground convoys. So they were trying to eliminate more carnage, really, <laughs> like IEDs. IEDs. So by bringing the hero, the fallen heroes, we call them heroes, the, the KIA, um, so by eliminating you guys, ground guys having to drive them back to base, they would just have, um, the helicopters pick them up with the guys that are wounded. So you can't mix, you can't have someone that has, uh, a double amputee and a guy that had passed away or killed in action. So they can't be on the same helicopter. Does that make sense? So you can't mix them. You can't have the alive the alive guys and so what we would do is we come down after medevac had already departed and then we would take anyone that didn't make it so that was our mission really aside from providing suppressive fire 
Did you guys get any type of, what was the brief like before or something like that? When you get first educated on, hey, this is going to be part of the, one of the mission sets that we do. That's, that's not just your standard admin flight. That's, no. a, little, that's a little heavier. So there isn't a brief. Um, however, as time goes on and you get more experience, you realize that there are certain people that need to understand what's going on. So you do start to incorporate something depending on who you're flying with. Um, but it's very, it's a somber flight. Like you're, you are, do, I had to, I had a really long talk with my sister about this because I had a really hard flight one night and the chaplain came to my room and he's like, Lacey, do you need to talk? And I was like, I think I'm okay. Um, so I called my sister back home and, and she said, she was a Kiowa, Kiowa pilot. And she said, Lacey, you have to remember that just like anything, every helicopter, every person on the ground, every admin person working at the talk or whatever they're doing, everyone plays a very important role when it comes to war and what you're trying to do, right? Everyone, everyone's job matters. It doesn't matter who it is. If you're cleaning bathrooms, that's really important. You know, if you're in the chow hall, that job is very important. And she made it very clear to me. And she said, Lacey, your job is to bring people home to their families. You know, like you are bringing them back from the war field and you are bringing them back to Bagram so they can then send them home to Germany and then back home to the United States. And without our role, you know, um, it would be very difficult. You know, people might not have closure or be able to, you know, mourn there. So there just comes a lot of like different aspects of um, accepting your role of what you're doing um, on a deployment. Uh, was that something, so that specific flight, can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Um, so it was pretty nasty. It was actually, forgive me, it's been years trying to think of the, the, uh, the actual term that it was, but, um, so it's like medevac, we fly to you, right? We pick you up, we bring you back, but there's also ground convoy medevacs. So, um, what happens is they someone had sent out a ground convoy to pick up someone that uh, a whole team actually that was hit with RPGs, and um, and I remember we had a reporter on our plane or on our helicopter, and we were we had two Apache escorts, two UH sixties, and we fly in there, and unfortunately, what happened was it was a trap for the ground convoy. And they all got hit. So the people that were actually in to help got hit. And uh, so we were not only medevacking um, one team, but it was turned out to be two teams. And so the um, it was just it was just real nasty. We lost radio communications with the Apaches. It was a lot of a c confusion, like trying to get onto the ground. And I remember the two guys that came on our, our on our um, helicopter. Uh, it was just uh, the the reporter couldn't come on our plane or on our helicopter to return to base. So we actually had to send another <laughs> helicopter back out for him. But um, it was just real somber. Like you just see some things that you know it's a wake up call to you, and you realize that like. Um, life is really short when you leave your room on a deployment, you tie your boots, you make your bed 
and you don't know if that's the last time you're going to do it. And you think about these poor guys and, and their boots were tied nicely. You know, you'd think about different things. It's, it's, compl- it's so mind boggling. It's so different than the day-to-day life that we live here in the United States. I don't know how to describe it, but you start, you start thinking about life a lot and you start thinking about the actual person that you're picking up and the people and, uh, and what they're all going through. And it's, it's just real sobering, I think. So after the conversation with your sister, did you, did that conversation kind of help you compartmentalize and put things into a little bit of a different perspective? I had a a better purpose, right? So I understood my purpose more. I think that's the best way. Yeah. To describe it is I understood that I was there to pick these guys up. I wasn't there to save them because they were already gone. You know, there's not much you can do at that point. So, um, and that happened really early in my first, that was my first appointment. Nice. And so I think it was just, um, it's a learning curve. Like you're just understanding what war is. You're understanding what it means to sacrifice people, you know, what they do. And that was, so that's your first deployment. Yeah, that was my first deployment. And you, in the Army, you guys do crazy long deployments. Yeah, we did a year, year, yeah, and that, like I said, 2008, 2009 was intense. I mean, uh, earthing out is basically when you you have a nine-hour mission block, and if you fly nine hours in your time frame, like, you have to bring a whole new crew in, and we were earthing out almost, like, every night. It was insane. Like, it was just a real nasty time for the ground guys, and... What major, do you remember the major... um, kind of campaigns that were going on was that Sangin Marja or is that pre-Sangin Marja I got to go back in my Marine Corps that doesn't books. sound familiar um, I think that was I think Sangin and Marja was a little bit later yeah like 2011 2012 ish but anyway yeah I was in Kandahar then that would the, yeah up north it was like Korngal was real hot um the Pesh was real hot um but yeah we were flying all over there in Jalabad and uh yeah, so we just got based in different areas around RC East. So you were busy. Flew. Oh, we were so busy. But Afghanistan, I mean, it's not all, you have to think, like, I volunteered, uh, the Egyptians had this amazing hospital on Bagram. And you could go volunteer. And the United States is so wonderful because there's so many great people that are willing to donate items. So we would get boxes and boxes and boxes of soap, shampoo, tampons, hairbrushes, like all the things. But here's what's crazy is you go to this Egyptian hospital and people would walk for weeks upon weeks without vehicles with their families to this hospital for care. And they were just, uh, it was just, it was just devastating to see that, you know, we were their last hope when it comes to medical attention. And so they would come up there and, um, for us that were volunteering, you know, we didn't have a big role. My role was to hand out, you know, like soap things to help, you know, clean their bodies, their hands, their hair. And what woke me up was that they had no idea what a tampon was, the women. So tampons. Yeah. How did they not know what tampons were? It's just hadn't been introduced. Uh, most women had absolutely no idea what uh, any kind of Western 
hygienic things were over there. Uh, so really, we weren't allowed. We had to filter through. All the tampons couldn't be handed out. Um, so that was just sort of like a, a, another eye-opener for me. Um, we, I'm going to jump stories here because I think this is really relevant. We had another reporter flying with us, uh, different deployment, 2011-12, and he used to be an SF guy. He's just a phenomenal reporter, um, telling all the right stories. But I remember having coffee with him one day, and he came in out of the field, and he's like, Lacey, you know, a lot of these Bedouins that are in southern Kandahar, he's like, we were flying over pretty remote areas, and a lot of the Bedouins there actually thought we were Russians. Uh, they were terrified of us. And, and to me, that was kind of eye-opening. I was like, are you freaking kidding me? And he's like, yeah, because these are the people that are true um, farmers that live in the middle of nowhere. They have no source of news. Uh, they have no communication to the outside world. And the last that they remember seeing a huge helicopter were when the Russians came into Afghanistan. Holy cow. And... And as a reporter, he he would like embed himself into these communities. And um, so to me, that was kind of like, holy crap. So if you think about tampons and you bring that back to tampons and you're like, why would they know what a tampon is? You know, like it, it, they thought we were Russians. So they were absolutely terrified. Uh, obviously not everywhere, but in certain remote villages, that's, that's what people actually believed. So did that kind of, I mean, adjust your perspective on things when you're you're meeting women and were they all from, from like various countries that you have women from pakistan afghanistan or or where did most of them kind of come from most of them were afghan natives okay yeah and did they when you are introducing a tampon yeah because these women have survived for a very long time without them yeah, they don't need them that's Was, why we were instructed not to hand them out but to me it was kind of mind-boggling because what woman doesn't know what a tampon is, but that's obviously Western. Yeah. You know, it's, they hadn't been introduced. They were still using um, kind of like what iodine does to your skin. So there's like certain dyes that they would use for beauty. Uh, They would, they would have certain charcoal, like eye makeup, (laughs) iodine for, I don't know. I don't know what they used for iodine, but they had definitely different, like, they tried to be Western in certain aspects, but um, you could tell the young teenagers that were definitely clinging on to Western tendencies, and then you had the old school um, holding on to their tradition, Afghan traditions, and it was kind of interesting to see the different perspectives just from people coming into a hospital, honestly, just observing. Like, if you're just observing people coming in as they are with their husbands, um, their children, their grandparents. Um, so you're giving out soap, just watching. That's all I'm doing. That's all I'm doing. I'm not doing anything medical. I would go through if they were already in beds, you know, I'd hand out certain aspects of things. And, but all I did was hand out hygienic stuff and it was mind boggling. They were just so grateful and so thankful for everything. Um, it was wonderful. So, I'm appreciative to the Egyptians that came up, showed up to Bagram and had this uh, hospital. Um, We obviously had another hospital on base that was absolutely phenomenal as well. 
But it was kind of neat to see the actual, the locals come in and be able so to work with them. So was that kind of, did, did that serve as a little bit of a decompression for you? You got to. Yeah, you got to you know, see from, the other side. You're flying, you're super yeah. busy. Your missions are pretty high stress. So that, was that yeah. a little bit of a, a break? I think so. I think it was a break, but it was also like our mission really primarily dealt with a lot of death. And so it was kind of nice to see the other side where you're actually actively helping people that are still around. And um, that ties into what I'm doing now. Um, so I, I think that the missions that I flew in Afghanistan were just very humbling and they brought me back down to earth and they made me realize how, how short life is and how quickly things can turn upside down and just tomorrow's never promised. And so you have to live each day, like literally it's your last. And that was my one takeaway from from Afghanistan. I remember flying to RC South when I was up in in Bagram, and uh, and I remember I met these really young guys. And what was so heartbreaking of seeing these eighteen, even as young as seventeen, where they got their parents' approval, like they were so young, right out of high school. And I remember they were just ready. They had just gotten to Afghanistan and they were just ready to go out and pull the trigger and just be excited about war. And you look and after even being in country for a month, you're like, fuck, are you my next medevac? And that's what you think about as a medevac pilot is like, are you my next flight? No kidding. Um, so when you see somebody that goes through your head. Oh, a hundred percent. I saw that when I met a, a kid in, a, in the defac. And uh, you think about things like that. It's it's definitely, like I said, it's sobering. Um, it's very morbid and you just kind of, but you get used to it after a while. I mean, that's your job. Yeah. You do it day in and day out and that doesn't bother you anymore, but you definitely have a different reflection on like what you're doing over there and why are we there? What are we doing? Is this, you know? Yeah. You're in the environment you're in. So it's a, it's a, it's mostly dudes. Right. Yeah. You know, there's not a lot of. Uh, yeah. How many girls were in your squadron? So in the army, we have companies. Companies. And um, when I got to my company, there was one other girl. Um, Out of how many? Oh God. At least twenty pilots and another like fifteen crew chiefs. All right. All right. So this was something that. That's a unique environment for a. Yeah. Uh, and how old are you on your first deployment? Um. 26. All right, so you're 26. There's one other girl Yeah. in your company. You're flying 60s Afghanistan. It's busy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How did you transition? How did that initial environment, that initial culture that you walked into, how did you do with adapting to that? Um, well, in the Army, at least at that time, at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, I you kind of find the group of women. It doesn't matter what aircraft they were, and you kind of held them tight. Mainly because, you know, you, there is something to be said about girl time. <laughs> so at least uh, over um, on deployment, they would in our we we called them bee huts, but they're little plywood shacks that hold about two, four, six, eight people maximum. And so you're with eight other women, and you all have your own little cardboard room that you know the walls go up not to the top of the ceiling, about six, eight feet, and uh, you have a door. But you get to know these women really well. And um, 
It's phenomenal. I mean, I have Chinook pilots. I have uh, Blackhawk pilots now that became your very, very close friends just because of your living quarters. Now you hold on to them tightly when you come back too, because it's, it's who you hang out with. You know, I mean, it's your, let's go paint our toenails, you know, chocolate chip cookies, (laughs) which was our code word for (laughs) Pringles. Uh, I don't know. Pringles has an aluminum uh, exterior and you could, (laughs) so you're not allowed to have alcohol on deployment, right? Right. So every now and then like people would try to figure out how to, you know, have a a little cocktail and just like, I don't know, figure out how. So our code was chocolate chip cookies, Pringles cans. So how did you, what did you? So the trick is guys, if you're ever in Afghanistan again, uh, yeah, get the word out. Get the word. Get out. the word out. <laughs> uh, Pringles cans, smart water bottles, empty them out, right? And it was excellent. And then you could fill it with drink of choice, you know, Spindrift. Uh, I don't know, Gatorade. What did you guys? What was your beverage of choice? Your your smuggled contraband beverage of choice? Vodka. Just vodka. Yeah. Did you go we to the pretty, defect? We were basic. Fill basic up, bees. Fill up a, a you know a can of Sprite or something. Whatever you could chase. Whatever in. you could. But yeah, I mean, uh, whatever you could get in, honestly, and it wasn't even, you don't want to go over the top. It is really just a place where you can sit down with a friend and, and let go and, and let it go. A little bit of Pringles and vodka. Pringles and vodka. So we had uh code word chocolate chip cookies. Had a pretty good supply chain of Listerine. So family members, <laughs> girlfriend at the time, yeah, even strangers I'd never met that my, my, dad and family members had given out my our our address on the on the boat so what they would do is you know they would send a care package of i don't know it's like a hygiene care package like toothpaste q-tips deodorant air fresheners and the one and a half liter bottles of brown (laughs) listerine so i don't you know they don't tell me this right so i get a care package great awesome thanks q-tips toothpaste all this stuff and the listerine is it looks unopened Mm mm-hmm so I opened this Listerine. I'm like, wait a second. This is freaking whiskey. Oh, heck yeah. And I was like, wait, it's a liter and a half. It's like a handle. <laughs> so what my family, my, my siblings and my girlfriend, everybody, friends had been doing was they would get this liter and a half bottle. They would razor off the plastic kind of outside seal. Yeah. But then it had a little mini foil seal on top of the bottle. Yes. They would even razor that off. Yep. Dump it out, wash it out, fill it with mystery whiskey. That was one of the cool parts is... It was mystery whiskey. We had no idea what kind it was. And then they would glue it back on. Mm-hmm. And then my one sister figured out how to get the, t- the actual plastic mm-hmm. back on. And she would somehow melt the mm-hmm. part that she had cut through with like mm-hmm. a little lighter and it would seal. Yeah. yeah. So at one point, I think I had like six liters of Listerine. Yeah. It was all mystery whiskey and it was amazing. You're like that guy in jail that has like all the hookups. Yeah. Totally, You're like, totally. you have those cigarettes. It was, the jail. Yeah. 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 And, and that's what the, the genius behind the Pringles bottles, it has aluminum. So if you go through a scanner, you can't really see what's inside. So you drop oh, in um, a smart water bottle, whatever the hell you want to drink. Yep. And, and then you just put the, the seal back over and put the top of the Pringles and you throw it in with a bunch of other food and it worked like a top. Man, every time we... So you had a system. You all had a system. You oh, had yeah. Pringles and vodka, paint your toenails. Pringles, chocolate chip cookies. All the girls were hanging out. Girls hanging out. And that's why, I mean, it's just important that you have your group. Yeah, and it doesn't matter. Um, 
who you are because a lot of times they're people that you wouldn't necessarily bond with in normal in normal times like if you were back stateside it might not be someone you'd be best friends with but you just learn to appreciate another like woman <laughs> to be around gotcha. and that's all that's all it comes down to because there's so few and so um in those situations like you just you're just thankful to have someone else to to be a girl around it was uh we had lucked out so we had you know, last deployment got to be pretty close with like all the other pilots and a mm-hmm. whole bunch of the female pilots are really cool. Yeah. And as you would expect, they always took really good care of like their living areas, mm-hmm. you know, vice the dudes. Like yeah. I was in, I was in a six man with five of the dudes mm-hmm. and I, we would get air fresheners, whatever you try to make it smell like it's a room that doesn't have yeah. six dudes in it, but it's still, it doesn't work. Yeah. All the time the girls are like, Hey, you need some air fresheners? Like, yes, I do. 100%. Hand they, it over. They had us back. <laughs> yeah, they had our back. Um, uh, but a question on that. So that's a, that environment is challenging. Not a lot of women mm-hmm. are cut out to be in that type of world. Sure. And it takes practice, honestly, Phil. Um, I, I straight out of flight school, I went to Egypt. First out of the gates, flight school. I was high school to flight school. So I had zero idea of what it was like to be in the military. I'm one of three girls. I didn't really hang out with a lot of guys, though my dad was probably enough to, like, he taught us a lot about men. But in the aspect of going straight overseas to the Sinai Peninsula, five square mile radius, uh, Finston, you know, you can't leave. You There's 13 different contingencies there. Uh, you know, you you have to learn how to live with men as a woman it's kind of like if i were to say phil come on over to my all girls gym and you have to learn how to adapt and are <laughs> like you just have to learn you just shift certain things right it's not bad or good it's just life that's just what happens when you're one of uh, you know a couple females you just learn how to adapt to being around the guys and there's nothing wrong with that i mean you're a woman in a man's world and that's sort of what is what it is and you know, it's an honor to be there. And I think you can't have thin skinned, like you have to be thick skinned, excuse me. Um, if you have thin skin, you're just going to get run over. You have no respect from the guys. Like you have to learn how to, I hate to say handle, but it is like handle men. <laughs> how do you handle someone, a handle a different personality, a stronger personality, a weaker personality, an ego personality. And then you just learn how to adapt as a woman. I think that's how you survive. How did that, so example, we had a two deployments. So my second deployment, we had a one of my awesome friends, female Wizzo, mm-hmm. did 20 years active duty Marine Corps. She's an absolute badass. Yeah. I mean, she is a savage of a woman. Yeah. She is, she became for us part of, it was a family, you yeah. know? And, but she, one of the things that made her so awesome was she would throw it back. You have to. You have to. If you don't, like I said, you're not respected. You don't, you aren't accepted into the family. Yeah. You have to be able to throw back what they dish out. Yeah. If we're because talking shit, you, you got to be able to talk Because that's what you would do to the guys, right? Right. If you had a new guy come in, you give him shit. If you have a new chick come in, you give her shit and you see how she handles it. And if she handles it like a POS or like, I'm sensitive, like that offends me. Like you're not going to go anywhere because you're not going to gain the respect. 
and you're sure as shit not going to be trusted on the battlefield. You know, like they need to be able to trust you as a pilot to do your job correctly. And if you can't handle as simple as a conversation um, or someone giving you shit, if you can't handle that, how could you handle them or anyone else out in a combat situation? Yeah. So you have to be very strategic and just learn how to dish it back. Exactly. And we, we had learned, and I noticed this, that was the first time I'd ever, yeah. we never had a woman in the squadron, like yeah. my previous squadrons before that. So I was like, okay. So she was really good at her job, mm-hmm. which was, so she has, she earned credibility there. She was super fun and cool and talked a ton of shit. Mm-hmm. She was a fitness ninja, mm-hmm. like could do probably more pull-ups than half the dudes in the squadron. And little plug for her um i'll leave her name out of it since this is unsanctioned but she lost uh somebody really close to her on deployment Mm -hmm. so she flew home for the funeral i think it was two days two or three days she was gone and she came back and she was flying missions within a week yeah like just like that just like that and her ability so one she had a great sense of humor yeah and i think humor that's probably the from what I noticed, the key ingredient when it comes to, can you take some shit? Can you, can you take some teasing, you know, with in good nature and not let it, you know, get personal or not take it too serious. Like make fun of yourself a little bit. She would do that. She was a rock star and she ended up becoming kind of our, you know, if anybody, and it never happened, but it's like how I would react if somebody ever messed with like you know, my, my wife, my mom, my sisters, she became that person to us. Mm-hmm. If anybody messed with her, like, dude, they were dead. Yeah. Like, we would bury them. Like, anybody else on base yeah. ever gave her shit? Yep. You guys were, were her big brothers, and yes. you always look out for them. And that's what's important to reach that level, uh, I think, as being a chick in the military. Did you have that? Did that relationship, did you guys have something like that similar in your squadron? Yes. Like, did they turn out to be your, your brothers? So... When I went to Afghanistan in 2008, 2009, believe it or not, that was like the epiphany I had. I had been in the military. I'd, I'd already gone to Egypt for a year, went to Fort Campbell. Um, we got deployment ready, then went on over to Afghanistan. And this group of guys that I was working with, um, you definitely, you have to prove yourself. And unfortunately in the military, it's not like the Navy where, um, you are set up with whoever your, uh, like your second in command going up to being commander. Uh, they're not necessarily with you the whole time. So every like 18 months, you'd get like a new person as the, the command leadership. So the, your guys call them skippers. Uh, they would be our company commander. Mm-hmm. So we get them all the time. And every time you get a new dude, you have to literally reprove yourself over and over again to these guys. And it gets old after a while because as a warrant, you stay there. As a commission guy, you filter through the company and then you go up to battalion headquarters and you're no longer flying. You're more just pushing pencils. And so that's why the warrant officer program is genius in the army because all you do your entire career is fly. So you have to earn these guys, the trust of these guys. And it wasn't really till I got to Afghanistan the first time that I finally grew the balls to (laughs) confront them. Um, The new commander? No, actually it was the commander. It was our senior pilot. It was like our entire command. 
Like I, I exploded. I, I kept getting pushed off flights. I, and I was so frustrated because a lot of them were like, okay, so uh, the feedback I was getting, cause I was up for pilot command and uh, they're like, no, you're too nice. You're too nice. Like you're too quiet. You're too nice. So I turned into an asshole in the cockpit and I would just like tell people what to do. I was kind of a dick. It's like, okay, I'm going to, if, if I'm too nice, I'm going to flip my role in the cockpit and I'm, I'm going to be someone else. And I did that. And then they're like, Lacey, you're being like a little too aggressive. <laughs> and then the, our battalion commander was just like, a, oh God, he was horrible. He, he would just like micromanage the flight schedule and he would pull people. He'd be like, no, this person's not good for this mission. This person's not good, even though our OPSO is like putting people up for these missions. And I had finally reached my limit. And let me tell you, it was the turning point, not only with the men and the guys in my company, but it was a turning point for my career. I lost it. I walked in <laughs> to, uh, to the talk and I, and I, I lost it. I, I went off on everyone. I just, I don't yell and I'm normally smiling. If I'm not smiling, like a hundred people come up to me and they're like, what's wrong? What's wrong? And I just went off on absolutely everyone and stormed out of there. And the one thing you learn too is you never cry. Hands down, never cry, right? Uh, and I didn't. Everything was great, but I lost my shit and I went off on everyone. I was, I was so sick of being the pushover because I was always the escape goat on everything. And it wasn't until that very moment that, like, I don't know, things just changed immediately after that. I remember going back in the next day, I went into my commander's office and I apologized for losing my temper. And from that day forward, everything changed. Um, what changed? I was finally able to go out and just on a mission. I, I hate to say like taken more seriously, but I think until you stand up to people or show a more like we were talking about like you have to earn your respect and it takes a long time to get there you can earn a couple people's respect but it takes a long time to um renew that respect with different people that are filtering through the command and um once you get there you're fine it just takes forever to get there um so once you showed them that, I mean, you stood your ground. Yeah, that's basically all it comes down to is like we were talking voice, about being you able voiced to. voice your opinion. You voice your opinion, not only do that, but like, what do you want from me? Yeah. <laughs> what do you guys want from me? Am I too nice? Am I too mean? Like, what do you want me to become in the cockpit for? Because the crew chiefs, you know, they were, they were all on my side. Everything's great, but it's just kind of hard. I think, I think, um, as you know, time goes by and, and there's so many the the turnover in army aviation is so high. Um, you just have to consistently prove yourself as a chick. So you went through, uh, some growing sounds yeah. like, well, that was my first deployment. That was your first. You. So like, I'm and that's still, your, that's I'm your a one and you've got yeah. seven more years. Yeah, oh, yeah. 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 So no, 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 no. Six because I went straight to Egypt out of flight school and then I came back for about six months and then deployed to Afghanistan. Did you get a chance to kind of mentor any other younger women? Yeah. Later on in your career? How did yeah. that go when you when you did you see a little bit of, you know, young Lacey showing up when these yeah. when these new girls showed up? Yeah, because you're you're naive, you're quiet, you know, you don't really want to ruffle feathers, you know, and 
And I think it's important for women to realize, like, I didn't even go on a date forever. I, I, um, I went to all the military functions alone. And I think it's important to um, just help groom the girls that are coming in. But honestly, there's so many more now. I think it's a little bit easier because you have more people to talk to. What kind of advice would you give the, uh, the younger girls when they showed up? Stand your ground. <laughs> Maybe voice uh, sooner than I did because right. I, I stood pretty stagnant for a while. I just was maybe too afraid or too scared to speak up. Um, so I would just say, you know, stand your ground and voice your opinions and stand up for yourself. And that's really all it comes down to because if you're doing everything right, you're a good pilot, you're following the rules, like why the hell shouldn't you be given a fair shot? So I don't know. I think a lot of girls are just scared to to voice opinions. Gotcha. So that, that depends was, on personal, you know. Yeah, a lot of a lot yeah. of variables. There's a lot of girls that I've met too that are like, hell no, I can voice my opinion. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, fuck yeah. Yeah. I wish I was more like you. <laughs> I was way too shy. Yeah. Um so the, I wanna tap into that for just a second. So that's some pretty cool stuff that it seems like you've applied, you know, in chapters of your life since then, mm-hmm. you know, and what you're doing now and everything, you know, cause there's no way you exist in this current environment, you know, mom, husband, business owner, if you haven't or don't stand your ground when needed, like there's no way this, it, that all that stuff functions like successfully, but it does. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so before we transition into what you're doing now, was there a flight or any specific experience as a 60 pilot that kind of, I don't know, it stands out or it moved you in a way, something that was like something that you're not going to forget? Sure. Um, something that stands out to me is we were flying in the Pesh and we were flying, so uh, we were flying a couple generals around. I can't remember which general, but we were flying um, – a mix between like Petraeus, McConville, um, uh, General Petraeus, McConville, Scaparotti. Anyway, it doesn't matter the general, but we were flying them around and we got approval. The Kiowas came in and they're like, you guys are cleared to land. And it was a pretty basic, normal mission day to day. And all you do is you go in and you land the generals and his entourage exit the aircraft, the crew chiefs go out with them, they exit the rotors, and then we are cleared to take back off or we power down and we wait for them to complete whatever they are doing at that location. So, um, you know, we're there for them. That's our job. And so the the Kai was cleared us in and it actually turned out to be like still a hot location. And so we went in and we landed and there's guys that were in a local school that was next to where we were landing. And what they do is, again, like the rules of engagement, a lot of, um, they knew our rules of engagement. It was pretty sad. So they were hiding in a school, shooting at us. And then I just remember we landed. The crew chiefs hop out the windows. They start quickly evacuating out of the aircraft, the generals and his entourage. And I just remember seeing like, it's like Forrest Gump when he was talking about the rain, like all the different 
like rain that can come up from different directions and sideways rain, but it was bullets that were hitting the ground and like the sand would shoot up. And um, we got just like hit pretty badly. Like our tail rotor, our um, the, the machine gun actually had a bullet that lodged in the chamber no of kidding. the 240. Yeah, behind my seat. And uh, just we, just we just got hit pretty badly. And I just remember in the moment... Uh, you can always tell like if you were meant to be in combat or not because of how you react under stress and you don't really know it until it's over. Right. Like you don't really understand the stress you're under until you're laying in bed that night and you're like, holy shit, I just survived that. And you see dust and bullets flying up all around you. And then, um, you know, I just remember we were just yelling at the crew chiefs to get the generals back in the aircraft and they were I just remember looking at, and seeing a couple of them, like, I've never seen them move so fast in my entire <laughs> life. Like, these are not, like, really fit guys. Right, and <laughs> right, right. <laughs> they're, like, the crew are just grabbing people and throwing them in the aircraft. And, uh, you know, they're, like, it's hot, it's hot. Like, get everybody, get back in here. And we're trying to take off. We're back at fly. And and we get out of there. And we, at this point, don't know that our, our tail rotor had a couple uh, shots through the paddles. And luckily, it didn't hit anything to where we lost effectiveness in the tail rotor, but um, we were able to fly back to base. But that was just like another one of those like, shit, you, you think you're cleared in, everything's good, and and it's not. And you have to be able to react under stress. And and to me, it was just, it was, it was the best case scenario. No one was shot. The aircraft took a lot of damage, but it was, it was good in the end. Yeah, so you got so it was to, a good story. So when you got back to your... Uh, you know, the hut with the girls and the toenails and the Pringles. Totally. And, and the Pringles. You know, a couple pre- Pringle shots. Did you get a chance? What was your, what was your kind of self debrief after that? I don't, I don't know if I, you know, you don't, like I said, you don't really realize it. You tied your boots that morning, you came back and you just get ready for the next day. Um, I think if you dwell too much on it, it just gets too real. So you just kind of move on. If you start thinking about the risk too much, yeah. it can it can possibly get in your head. If yeah. You, yeah. Yeah. I mean, honestly, the amount of of you have to you have to just like push past. Um the amount of that was like I keep going back to the amount of death that year was just unreal um in Afghanistan. And you just have to learn how to see the good in things and um, appreciate your job and just keep putting one foot in front of the other and just keep doing your mission. Because again, if you dwell too much, I don't know. Yeah. If you, if you think too much about all the bad things that oh can God, happen, it'll ruin you. You won't be many, able to complete yeah, it. Yeah. There's too many. Yeah. But it'd be, we would actually do that just for fun. We would be like, all right, what's all the terrible things that might happen? You know, yeah. t- taking off from the carrier, coming to back and land. And it always starts with, well, you hit the back of the ship, you crash yeah. and die. Yeah. Oh, like there's a, it, the, the first thing on the list is, well, I crash and die. And then it, it goes down from there. <laughs> yeah, you know, totally. But, and we would laugh about it. Yeah. So you got to have a bit of a, the sense of humor and the darkness, you know, yeah. that's a real yeah. thing. Well, uh, going back, I know we were talking a little bit too about you, you mentioned port calls and um, my second deployment. So I, 2008, 2009, go home and then you spend a year getting ready to go back. Uh, I got a cat because I couldn't have a dog. So I got cash. He's actually on my lap right now and he's old as shit. He's 15 years old now. And uh, my husband keeps saying he won't die. But today is October 26th and 
uh, 11 years ago today, he proposed to me on mid-tour leave. And it's the one day out of the year I get to wear this ring, which is a dollar bill that he made on Southwest. <laughs> Sorry, honey. We got to get a picture of that. We'll, we'll put this that ring is just unreal. Yeah. So It's an expensive ring. The cool thing is he proposed to me with, uh, on top of the Gallenberg Mountains, um, with a dollar bill origami ring. And I was on deployment heading back to Afghanistan for the second go. And um, it was just something, something special, something real. And I remember going back to, to Clarksville, Tennessee after he proposed and I'm getting ready to head back to Afghanistan. And I went and got my nails done. And this Korean lady, my favorite nail place, she looks at me and Gabe came with me and he, she's like, Oh, Gabe, you're so cheap. <laughs> you, <laughs> a dollar bill. Like you couldn't even do a 20. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll just never a, forget just that. A single. And then the, the the funny thing is, is um the next day I was heading out and that morning he got a call and he's like, Lacey, I have to run by the FedEx store real quick. Let's go. And so we go to the FedEx store and uh he gets down on one knee in the parking lot. And I was like, what the fuck? Yeah. Like he already proposed. Like, what are you doing? And then he opens up this FedEx package and it's a ring, like a real ring, like a diamond. And I was like, holy shit, I get to go back because I couldn't take a paper ring back to Afghanistan. And I wanted to show the girls. I was so excited. And uh, he proposed to me and this FedEx lady, she's on her way to work. And she's like, well, that's the first. <laughs> and the ironic thing, and what's so funny about the story, which I know is like, you're like, why is she telling me this? But the reason why is because um, now Gabe is flying for FedEx Express. <laughs> <laughs> and uh you know getting rings to people all around the world that uh, are proposing to their fiancés in the parking lot in the parking lot I like that. I like so it. romantic i think no kid and i think this would sell and gabe yeah we, we can we can all tag team this together if we did a <laughs> a pilot's book of romance mm. and mm. all the romantic things dude pilots do that are just i mean you can't you can't teach that type of romance level knowledge a fedex parking lot no i mean that's varsity <laughs> That's varsity right there, you know. <laughs> Your letter. I love it, Gabe. Um, so, yeah. So, today's a special day is why I'm wearing well, congrats. this. Well, congrats. I had no idea that, that we're doing this on, on the anniversary of the proposal. Yeah, 11 years since I was in Afghanistan. Badass. And he proposed. So, anyway, um, back to Afghanistan. I um, It was... It was amazing, and what I'm sure so many people can relate to this is that a deployment is so um, it's it's bad and good in so many ways. Like I, when I got back from deployment, all I wanted to do was go back, and the simplicity of life over there was so epic and so nice. Right, um, coming back is hard to real life. <laughs> Trash goes out on Tuesday, pick up yeah. the mail at one o'clock every day. Admin. Ad, life admin, kids. I didn't have kids then, but. Um, yeah, it's yeah. different. You would like, most people wouldn't understand that when you're flying in combat and when you're deployed, most of the BS mm -hmm. of life, mm -hmm. you don't have to worry about. Hey, the defect is at these hours. Hey, Tuesday's taco day. Hey, Thursday's, <laughs> you know. Freaking margaritas or whatever, I wish. No, I something else. But it's like, oh, hey, you get excited. Root beer floats. Yeah. We do root beer floats after a mission. I mean, just those little things you look forward to. Ice cream, the ice cream bar. Yeah. I mean, oh, God, the, yeah. yeah. Remember uh, Surf and Turf was like rubber. 
but it was yeah. still surf and that turf. That was the best surf and like, turf ever. Hell yeah. yeah. This steak is bulletproof, yeah. but I'm going like, <laughs> to crush this thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like you got to, you literally get out your K bar to cut the steak because <laughs> the plastic keeps breaking. All right. So that was, that's, that's good stuff. Let's, we're going to transition into what you're doing now. Okay. All right. So what year did you get out? 2012. All right. And you didn't become, you guys got married what year? 2012. Same Okay. So same, same year you got married. And then when did the first human come in? 2014. Okay. And then when did your side hustle start? Okay. Well, there's multiple side hustles. Well, oh, you had some other side hustles. Yeah. Not now, but there were before this one that you're talking no about. No kidding. So I actually wanted to get into safety when I got out of the military. I was OSHA certified. I did accident investigation. I was the safety officer. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to do that on the civilian side. That'd be a pretty cool job. And I actually talked Gabe into it. And he's like, yeah, cool. Wait, uh, so what was your business model? Well, I didn't really have one at that point. I was still in it. I was like, wouldn't that be cool? To, to do what exactly? Yeah, hired by OSHA. Okay, to work for OSHA. Yeah, 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 right. yeah. Safety, anything. At that point, I was like, I hadn't gotten hired by anything. I hadn't applied. It was just like, this is what I know in the military. If I'm not going to fly when I get out, this is what I have to offer the world. So that quickly dissipated. <laughs> copy so so Within strike a couple one. months strike, strike one. one i was and like what was no the, this what was is not what one? i wanted to do <laughs> that's terrible uh so the next one i i wanted to get into fitness so i became a personal trainer and i said you know i'm gonna i'm going to get into fitness we'll do fitness nutrition and um that's what i did so i became a personal trainer in virginia beach uh do you remember, remember wearing's gym and uh i had monroe my my daughter at that point and I was, I was so excited about it. I really wanted to get into it. I loved it. I had like the best mentors, uh, with my military background of just fitness. I, that's what I thrived in, uh, aside from aviation. And so, um, at that point, Gabe was finishing up, um, flying F-18s. He was headed over to Fallon to fly F-5s for the adversary squadron out there for, uh, the fighter weapon school. So, I was like, well, you know, I'm just going to go get a job in Fallon being a personal trainer. And I learned real quickly that people care more about their hair and their nails than their fitness. So there was no money in it. I wasn't getting paid. It was terrible. I was like, this is insane. What, why do, how do people do this for a living? So, um, I decided I love systems. I love aircraft systems. It's my jam. So I said, why don't I get into house systems? So I became, I started my own business and I was a home inspector. So I inspected houses for two years, three years. And I started my own business and I was a home inspector. Continue. I'm, I'm, I'm listening here. I had yeah. no idea you're a home inspector. Yeah. Yeah. That is a. I loved it because a house is a lot like a helicopter, you know, like uh, the, the electronics, the engine, like. Uh, the way a house runs. And I, I just kind of looked at it that way. Um, so I would love to learn about a house and the guts and what makes the house tick and fall apart and all the things. So that's what I did. <laughs> and uh, I wish I would have done that in a place where they didn't have crawl spaces. Uh, like Las Vegas, they have slabs. Yeah. Yeah. So you don't have to crawl under them. But I got, there's so many stories, holy crap, about, you know, spiders and scorpions and snakes but the biggest one was rats um when you're in a crawl space doing the john wayne low crawl and there's only one entry and exit and you find a mama rat that is really pissed you're down there 
So it was fun. It was a really fun job. I did it for three years and then finally I was ready to move on. <laughs> uh, so Gabe, my sister and I were in Honolulu and we're at the pool and we're like, wouldn't it be cool? Another wouldn't it be cool, right? Wouldn't it be cool? It's always when you're on vacation and you're happy and you're drinking. I was I was about to say like, always. are you going, we mojitos? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it was pina coladas. Oh, okay. And, uh, and we're laying there and we're like, wouldn't it be cool to have a fitness studio where, because we have our kids, we're trying to make sure our kids aren't drowning, all the things. We're like, wouldn't it be cool to be able to go work out, people tell you what to do, and there's childcare. I was like, fuck yeah, that's, there's nothing like that in Reno. Aside from the hospital, St. Mary's has something. And I was like, you know, Gabe, we should probably talk about this. And it, we talked about it for six months and then we went on another vacation. <laughs> and we're drinking. Because we could afford to at that point. And, um, and uh, Gabe's like, let's do it. It's once in a lifetime. We're at the right point in our lives. And um, we pulled the trigger. And once we pulled the trigger and decided to open up a gym, there's no going back. You hit the ground running and I've been running ever since and it's been three years since we opened and it feels like maybe 15 years, but we have accomplished so much in such a, such a short amount of time that we we're just in it. We're living it. We've got young kids. Um, Gabe's flying his ass off overseas. I'm running the gym, managing the kids and like all the things, but those are our side hustles. But so talk about the you know, what is your gym? What's the name of it? What, what yeah. makes it unique? Cause it's so, the only one of its kind, right? Yeah. As far yeah, as I know. Re- yeah. 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 So what we did was when we moved to Reno from Fallon, I was an orange theory member and I was like, Oh, orange theory is like the best thing ever, even though everyone kept getting hurt and falling out. And, um, but it's, it had a really good business model. Um, but it needed tweaking. There was a lot of things that it needed fixed. Like they're, they just, didn't have it right probably because they're a multi-billion dollar company at this point. Um, so for insurance purposes, I think they had to do certain things. So I was like, why don't we create a gym that is all of our favorites? So we pulled from Orange Theory, CrossFit, F45, um, and we made our own thing. And um, so we're like, a, you don't reinvent the wheel, right? Like you just, you take what you know and you recreate it. And so we made something better. We made a better product. Um, What's so, the name of your gym? <laughs> Sweat Fitness. Okay, no kidding. Sweat, no kidding, man. Okay, so Sweat Fitness was born in October of 2019. And it was all these different aspects. And we were so excited about it. We offer childcare. And, um, and that's a huge thing. Our big push, because at that time, we had really young children. And I couldn't go work out. Because I'd have to hire a two-hour babysitter at minimum. And then who can afford a $180 gym membership and childcare? So we're like, this is lacking in this area. So we took what was lacking and we created it. And now we're just trying to get word out to all the young, you know, like it doesn't, young, old, whatever, parents that need to get out and need that escape, uh, mental break. But also, you know, just from a fitness level, we offer a superior product because we build our workouts in six six weeks, micro and macro cycles, like your personal training client. So our injuries are almost next to none. Um, and what's your, re- what's your retention rate of clients? 5%. No retention. So so 5% loss or 95% retention? 95% retention, 5% loss. So you're only 
That's significant. It's huge. And what it is is community. So we have built community. What have you what have you built? Like a have you tried did you try to have was one of your goals, hey, we're gonna build a certain type of culture at the business? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And if so, what what was so, that conversation like and what kind of culture did you try to build? Yeah, that's a good question. Because in the beginning, I was like, whoever can get in here, I don't care as long as, you know, like we're creating this gym. And the more I learned about business, because I was like, this is like basket weaving of aviation. <laughs> I was aeronautical science major and I know nothing about business. I know aviation. Like that's all I know. And so when we went into this business adventure, I learned a little bit from my home inspection business, but I learned that you have nothing, absolutely nothing in a business unless you have a team that is like a family and that cares as much for the business as you do. Um, you have community members, members, gym members, whatever you want to call them, um, that are invested mentally, physically, all the things into the studio. So that is a good business model in my opinion. Um, so as long as both sides are happy and it's really hard to keep them both happy, honestly. Um, but if you can figure out how to master that, you've got a gold mine, uh, as far as keeping members happy and keeping your staff happy because your staff is your identity. Like they are the face of the business. Um, when you walk into a salon and you're going to go get your haircut and the front desk chick is a complete bitch, what are you going to do? Well, when I go to the salon, <laughs> uh, usually, tell me more, Phil. It's usually a, a dude and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he's like, hey, sit down. And I get the same haircut every time. So it's, yeah. little, you know, the it's bitchy different. girl at the front desk at my salon, she yeah. must have got fired. Uh, well. But I know what you mean. That's the first impression. In, the first impression is everything. Yeah. And if you don't have that, I feel like you're losing out. You're losing business. You're losing all of that. So you you guys built the business around the people. Mm-hmm. So you looked, you hired, you hired people for character. Is mm-hmm. that safe to say? Well, character and their credentials, obviously. But the the trick is to not be desperate and if you just hire because you need to hire that's a problem uh and that will reflect on you and your business so you have to be able to hire the people that fit your business and for me it took me coaching for a while i'm not coaching anymore but in the beginning i was there and i'm not the best coach honestly like i'll i'll admit it i'm not i i'm very personable i love coaching but man there's some really good people out there and they just blow me out of the water um so for me but you do what you have to do as a business owner you survive you wear many hats you do everything and if you don't do everything then you're failing too did you tap into your ready room experience like as a 60 pilot and try to you know, the, the good lessons learned from your You have to days. learn how to read people. Okay. I think you get pretty good at reading people in the military. You get used or you learn how to handle people. I, I know that might sound a little rough around the edges, but you learn how to, um, you know, manipulate the situation to where you give them the idea that this is a great idea. So you can, <laughs> you, you can give people... You learn how to communicate, how to give people good and bad news tactfully. Yes, that's a good way to put it, tactfully. And uh, that's something I I learned a lot about from good and bad 
com- commanding officers and, and mm-hmm. leadership is mm-hmm. that's definitely not how I would talk to somebody or no. that guy just gave me some horrible news and I respect how he delivered it Yeah, or, or that, you know, that kind of thing. Um, I had a really interesting conversation, one of the podcasts with my buddy Barf Byers, you know, yeah. we all know, and he was a LSO ninja and just how can you give somebody constructive feedback on something they've done or been doing wrong mm-hmm. in a way that makes them, you're not crushing their soul. But they want to do better. Yes. Yeah. And you, so that was kind of like, did you have to have those experiences with your employees, with your coaches? Yes. Sometimes your husband, maybe? Uh, yes. Teamwork. Yeah. And, and that's true. And it, and it takes, you have to refine that, but definitely, because I also noticed that civilians are way different than dealing with military people. So, um, I also learned that I had to, you have to almost sugarcoat it a little bit more. I've noticed that I come across, which is kind of funny because I feel like I'm really nice, but you learn that they don't have thick skin, like a lot of military people. So you have to learn to adjust to the civilian world <laughs> and uh, sugarcoat things a little bit more uh, than you would if I was talking to you and you know or someone else. Right. Yeah. Uh, I For learned sure. that the hard way. As did a good friend of mine. I made all the staff members cry at one mm. point, which I was like, uh oh. And then when it, like one of one of my employees is crying in front of me, I just I don't know what to do. It's I. You're, I'd start looking around like, like, where should I now? go? Where, where do yeah. I put my hands? How do what I do I do? You know, I want to disappear. <laughs> and they're crying. I'm like, I'm not trained for this. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to mm-hmm. figure out how to get out of this situation as quick as possible. Yeah. Um, but yeah, your your language, the delivery. Yeah. You can't just uh, like talking to a, a young group of Marines is very different than talking to civ- oh. civilian women. Yes. 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 You got to adjust a little bit. So, you know, I mean, and it's all a learning curve. I knew nothing about this and it's all been trial and error. So, <laughs> so some good learning. We're still here. <laughs> all right. Three so what later. was the, so it's three years later, mm-hmm. you guys are, the business is doing well yeah. and it's noticeable even from an outside perspective, the culture that you've built. Oh, thank you. You guys have a really cool, Thanks. it looks like a family. Yeah. Like, no kidding. Yeah. I'm like these people are really freaking happy at the gym. Yeah. You know, like they're excited <laughs> and loving whatever, whatever misery you're throwing on them. Yeah. So what has been two part question? What's first part? What's been the most challenging aspect so far about having sweat fitness? Um, well, I don't know if you can pinpoint that to one specific thing for me personally, um, because Gabe and I are in this together. I am, I'm running the business, but I have to say that understanding finances <laughs> has been a huge learning curve for me, but also uh, learning how to be a sales and marketing uh, rep. Uh, I know nothing about sales and marketing, and literally from the time we started this business, it has been a gigantic learning curve. I didn't know how to make cold calls. I didn't know how, you know, and it takes it takes a kind of person now. When someone cold calls me, I'm kind of nice because I know what it's like to be on the other end of the phone. And um, there are so many, honestly, <laughs> I don't know where to start. Give me the first one that pops off the top of your head. The most challenging. Challenging. What's something that just freaking drove you nuts? Oh, something gosh. like, son of a bitch, I got to deal with this again. I love it, honestly. Not, I would say marketing. Marketing, okay. 
um, has been my biggest challenge because I don't, I am not the best person when it comes to social media or it comes to reaching out to, um, I'm not an event coordinator or planner. And I had no idea that's like an actual full-time position in this type of job and industry. You should be at every 5k, you know, all the different types of runs you have in town. And that has been my biggest headache. Um, aside from figuring out, um, how to just run a business as a whole. It's, it's freaking mind blowing how much goes into it. Because in the beginning you're like, how hard can opening a gym be? You, <laughs> you create a workout oh, and you teach it, right? How hard is that, Phil? Um, but then if you that don't, was the, if that was the business alone, <laughs> if that was literally it is let's go into a square room and do a workout easy. So I wrote a list the other day and it was Gabe and I were driving back from June Lake and I wrote a list and it was like, write down everything, every task that I do at the gym, because I need to figure out how I can start getting help. And I mean, it was well over a hundred tasks that you realize when you have that many tasks and you are running that much in a business, you're going to start doing everything poorly because you can't be as efficient as you would be if you had help doing those hundred tasks, right? You can't just say these top five tasks, I'm going to fucking nail it and I'm going to do really good at it because by the time you start on one, you're working on 98 and then you're up to 97. Someone walks in and they're like, I need help with my you know, account or I need updating my billing. And so it's just learning how to manage what you're doing is a challenge as well. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah there's a lot, you know, we were joking on yesterday when you think, Hey, it's going to cost this much to start this business. Yeah. And then the formula for that is the actual formula is take whatever number, you know, whatever number you were thinking, yeah. double it and then add, add another like, 50 grand. Yeah. <laughs> whatever it is. It's yeah. not even remotely close to what you think it's going to cost. Oh my All right. God. So challenging marketing. How about what's been the most rewarding Oh, hands down the people I have gotten. Okay. On my darkest day at this gym uh, where I have to dig deep, I have to dig deep to go to work or just keep putting one foot in front of the other because it's not all rainbows and unicorns. You have your ups and downs, it ebbs and flows in this industry it, with the season. Um, and it's like, when someone comes up to you and they actually like write you a note or they, they come to you even face to face and they're like, thank you. You've saved my life. And you're like, come again. I did what? And they're like, I'm no longer on these blood pressure medications and all the, like the, the medications that they've been on for a certain amount of time, or this is their mental outlet is to come work out and they have a peace of mind. Um, I think it's, those are the things that keep me going. I am so rewarded in that way because of my military background. That's why I got into fitness and, and health was because before it was, it was too late when I could help people. And so now that I've gotten out of the military, I feel like I'm, I've started a space, this amazing space where people can be themselves. We're a family we know your dog's name. We know your kids' names. You know our names. Like we, uh, we go to No Shower Happy Hour on Fridays once a month. And 
Um, Wait, no shower happy hour? Yeah. <laughs> so you go work out and you go to the bar. Nice. I like it. It's fabulous. No shower and happy hour. I know Sarah came up with that. She's genius. So, um, so no shower happy hours. We have different community events that we do and it just creates this tribe of people. We have a group me account like where everyone is like chipping in on recipes. Like, are you getting enough protein in your day? Let's talk about macros and we do in-body scans on our guys and girls and it's just a really cool community but when someone actually tells you that you have made that big of a difference in their lives um it it means so much to me on a personal level that I will go into debt for you (laughs) even longer because like Uh, I know, I know, I know, you know, we're only three years in and we're doing awesome. Um, we're doing really well. And I think that it's important to, um, not look at the negatives in a business because it's so easy to fall back and say, but we're this much doing this or we're not where we're supposed to be at this point. And the negative mindset of looking down constantly will ruin you. So the idea is that when you are in the thick of it, you look at the high points, you look at what you have, you look at the positives and you say, I've saved a couple of people's lives because they found our studio. Um, I take my dogs to work every day. I can take my dogs to work and they're therapeutic for people that come in and they pat them on the head and they're like, oh my God, I love the dogs. Um, they're like, you have to just look at the small things. Look at your like balance sheet be like, look at this win. I made this much money this year. This is rad. Like this never happened. Like you just have to look at the positives and not dwell on the negatives as much and look forward. Um, I think that's key is mindset to a business success. Very cool. Yeah. So why'd you decide to do it? Like, why did you guys decide, you know, obviously you were the first side hustle you're drinking Pina coladas, I believe, on the beach. Mm. And then... The second, it was like Titanic on a on a cruise ship. You guys are on a cruise ship on the second one. We're sitting on the okay. balcony. The kids are sleeping inside. And um, that's when we decided to make it happen. We said, it's now or never. So why? Why did you, you know, why jump off a cliff into this crazy thing you know nothing about? Because we could. And because we had the vision and it was a dream that we wanted to make come true and it was we knew it was going to be a lot of work I mean we're gonna we didn't know it was going to be this much work right Gabe but it was like it was a dream that we knew we could achieve and we had the the money set aside for it we had the ambition we had all the things. I feel like all, all of our ducks were in a row to start this business. And I remember us looking at each other and we said, now or never. But we'll regret it if we don't. And that was the big thing was like, I didn't want to go through life saying, what if? What if we did? Even if we failed tomorrow, I wouldn't regret it. Gabe wouldn't regret it. We've talked about this. Even if we went into the, you know, we never got our money back from the gym it wouldn't be a loss because we have grown and learned so much in this three-year process that we've succeeded in my mind. So maybe not a financial mind. If you're like, I was, I was looking to make half a million or however much money you decided. Um, the fact is, is that we fucking did it when no one else would. 
there's very few people that actually start uh, down this path because it's scary. It's terrifying. And it, it's a huge commitment. And when you look at it as like now or never, um, we had a really good friend uh, and it's a, it's an awesome quote from the movie, the Martian. Do you guys, do you remember that one? The one with uh, Matt Damon? Yeah. Yeah. Good movie. He says, you can get busy dying or you can get busy living. And it was on his darkest day where he was either going to starve to death or he was going to make potatoes out of shit, <laughs> whatever it was. Yeah. It was a crazy movie, right? But the same concept is like, you can just get busy doing your nine to five, doing nothing and be happy with that. And that's totally okay. If that is your path and your choice, great. But if for one second you were like, I want this, then you should definitely try it. Give it a go. Yeah. You never I agree. know. Roll the dice. Yeah. Give it a shot. Life's too short. All right. So we're going to transition towards the, uh, we'll call it the closing portion. So right now you're married to a fighter pilot who proposed to you 11 years ago today. 11 years ago. 11 years ago today. You have two small humans, two dogs, a cat. You run a side hustle. You've got over 100 things to do that you know of that you can think of on your list of stuff to keep this side hustle and this gym going and successful. He travels for work. Mm-hmm. You know, you have just about every possible excuse available to you to not do what you're doing. Kids are not easy. There's no chance in hell you're getting perfect sleep every night and then got to go run the gym the next day. So, you know, the list of reasons why you could potentially say, hey, let's not do this anymore or this is too difficult. Like, they're all there. Everything's there. Kids, difficult time running the, you know, mom, mm-hmm. wife, mm-hmm. side hustle, husband's traveling. You know, there's a, there's a list of excuses that somebody could literally write down and be like, these are why you shouldn't do this or why you couldn't do this. But you guys still do it. Mm-hmm. How do you do it all? Well, I think it goes back to the way I was raised. And I think a lot of people have heard this before. If I said I want to play soccer, I would play soccer even if I hated it. My parents would say, you committed to this, you do it. You don't quit until it's over. I went to flight school and I knew I wasn't going to have a life for a year. I hunkered down. I studied. I flew. And and I knew for that amount of time it was for the greater good. A year later, I would have a life. But until then, I was to not have a life. I would study, do what I needed to do, get it done. And so I think as life progresses, that kind of gets more instilled into your brain. And... um and now I realize it's just one foot in front of the other. I mean, who's to say my life is harder than the next person's? It's just that I have learned to manage it differently. Um, if getting up at 6 a.m. is an issue because the kids are screaming at each other, they're not dressed, they're not fed, then you have to get up at 5.30 or, or 5. So you have to learn to adjust with your lifestyle as it changes. So as my roles change and I create more work for myself, I have to adjust my lifestyle. Maybe it's going to bed at eight and getting up earlier, or maybe it's hiring an assistant um, and going in the hole there. But for right now, where I am right now, it's one foot in front of the other. I just hunker down. I, I do my work because I know I have a goal I'm trying to achieve. 
And as long as you're setting these small goals um, that aren't unreasonable, you're like, okay, well, this is my six month goal. This is my month goal even. And you start just like writing them out. You can achieve these things and life gets easier. But if, if they're unreasonable goals, obviously it's too hard. But I think it's um, organizing your life. It's having a very, like a very understandable and a supportive partner. Without Gabe, I wouldn't be where I am. And without me, he wouldn't be where he is. So it takes two to tango. And with kids, it's like we have, we've mastered, we've mastered it because we communicate well. Without communication, you have nothing uh, as a marriage. And then with a business, it's the same. It's a third child. So as long as I can manage all three, and there are days that I don't. I, you know, like everyone else, I'm human. And I, I, I just am like, I'm done. I need a day off. And I was just told I'm not allowed to work Saturdays. So my advice to you is if you have your own business, <laughs> Monday through Friday, take the weekends off because that's your time with your family and you need that time to reset so you can be ready for Monday. Um, and that was something I wasn't doing. I was working six days a week. You're just wearing yourself down. Yeah. Uh, and then you're just burnt out. Yep. You fatigue, like just everything. And, and, and you don't even realize you're there. No, that's until something. It's too late. And I, I was there. <laughs> I had a buddy of mine gave me some really good advice lately. And he talked about, he's like, dude, sooner or later, you got to be selfish. Yeah. He's like, you got to take care of yourself. You know, if you're not taking care of yourself, you're not healthy. You're not, you're not at top shape for your kids or your husband or or work or your business, whatever. If you're literally grinding yourself to death. Yeah. Everyone else is, you're not the best product. Yeah. So I was like, oh, dude, that's, I never thought about it. He's like, it's not being selfish. No. You know, it's not the right word, but you need to take care of yourself before you can. Yeah. If you're going to present the best version of yourself you got to get your shit square first yep so would you change anything would you do it would you do it all over again yes i would do it all over again in a heartbeat cool what would you say to somebody who might be on the fence let's like specifically moms with kids you know whether they're single moms or married families whatever they have enough there's enough things going on that can get in the way if you let them but it takes a significant amount of organization, time management, prioritization, communication to make it all happen. What do you say to them if, if somebody's thinking about, you know, jumping off a cliff, getting into that side hustle or, or going after whatever, whatever objective they've always wanted to try? What do you tell them? The pain is temporary, but the honor that you get in it is forever. So the pain that you endure... <laughs> like the lack of sleep, the, the lack of time with your kids. Um, I think it's all, it's all temporary and you have to figure out how to manage both. Um, and I think that um, if you don't try, life's, life's just way too short. Like you just have to try and um, surround yourself with support and people that can help you get there because I am a firm believer that you don't get anywhere alone I don't care who you are like yes you are the driving force behind it but it takes a team so surround yourself with people who believe in you surround yourself with people that have the same vision and go after it 
I dig it. I think that is uh, some good gouge to pass on. Good. All right. So <laughs> we're going to do the uh, the speed round. Oh, gosh. All right, okay. So here's how this is going to go. This is the first time doing this. These are the rules. You and I are going to have a conversation. We can only respond with one word answers. So I'm going to say a word, and then you get to say a word. The first thing that pops into your head, only one word. Okay. And I'm, I only have two words written down that I were, I'm reminding myself to say, but the rest are totally just random off the top of my head. You ready? Yeah. So one word and one word. That's how, those are the rules. Wait, so you say a word and then I'm I say I'm going to say one word and then you say the first word that pops to your head. Like what this word means to you. You ready? This is either going to be really good or really bad. It's got potential to be pretty bad. Okay. Just, you know, this, this might be <laughs> just a horrible idea. You ready? Okay. All right. First word. Burpees. Oh, happiness. <laughs> I love burpees. Oh, gosh. It's my jam. No one's ever said that. Okay. Fighter pilots. Hot. <laughs> whiskey. Oh, puking. I hate whiskey. I always get sick. Snow. Too cold. Yeah. Children. Happiness, love, hate. <laughs> a little mix. A little, mix. A little bit of both. That's more than one word, but I don't think there's one word for kids. Tommy guns. Oh, amazing friend. Yeah. Just badass. Excuses. Not acceptable. Coffee. Smells better. Margaritas? Too sweet. Faith. Uh. <laughs> Important. Important. Marriage. Forever. Gin. Tonic. All right. That's a good way to finish it, man. I loved it. With a good G&T. Mm. All right. Well, <laughs> Lacey, thank you. Mm. I hope you had as much fun thank as I did. Thank you. This, is, this a blast. is great. I told you. <laughs> thank you, just you for don't inviting think, me. No, You're you so just sweet. don't think and we just bullshit and drink gin and tonics and magical shit happens. No kidding. This was awesome. Yeah, and this could go on for like two or three more hours. I could have there. You get so many stories from flying sixties and just the stuff you did. That's just badass. Yeah. And but we're gonna keep it within a reasonable amount of time. What were we at? An hour and a half? Yeah, ish, ish, something like that. I okay. stopped looking at the timer. Okay, but um, no, thank you. Seriously, pleasure. Thank you. This was way more fun than I thought. I told it would you. Be. I was a little nervous. No, no, you just don't think. Yeah, you just don't think and talk and try to don't try to sound cool because it doesn't work. No. Did I, was I trying too hard? A little bit at the first, at the beginning, yeah. At the beginning? Yeah. It's hard. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Fucking no, hard. No, it's all right. Shit. But, okay, so hey, no, thank you. It's not meant to be a podcaster. It's been a blast, but real quick, before uh, I turn it over to you, where can people find, read about, subscribe, check out Sweat Fitness? Um, you, our website, www.sweatfitness.com. Uh, you can sign up for classes there, find out about our memberships. Um, you can also find us on Instagram at sweat fitness Reno. 
And um, again, you can find out about all of us on on there through our link tree. Um, so yeah, it's right there. Check out Sweat Fitness. Really cool. The dogs are there hanging out. So it's a it's definitely something you should check out if you're in the Reno area. Even just stopping by. Yeah. Go in. Give we'll a take you. Yeah. Get yeah. a good good hour long haze session. Yeah. Uh, you're yeah, in definitely. and out in 45. Yeah. Oh, 45. Piece of cake. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. We'll Nothing. crush you. Don't Nothing. worry. I mean, it's not, it's not an easy workout, but we'll, we'll get you through it. And then on what days, no sweat. Or no, no shower, happy hours are once a month. And you'll find when those dates are on our social media, we'll post those, but they happen um, normally monthly. And then we'll put the date and the location and time. So you can join us there too. If you have any questions, just no come on shower, down. You don't have hour. to be a member. Check yeah. that out. No shower, happy hour for sure. All right, Lisa, at this point, I'm going to turn it over to you for any closing thoughts, saved rounds, anything at all. Gosh, I, I thank you for your time. I don't, I don't have anything more. I mean, this has been wonderful. I really appreciate your time. Pleasure is all mine. Cool. Anything else? All right. This is Lacey and Susan. Right here, folks. See ya. Bye.